It can be a difficult thing to cope with being forgotten. Men and women work hard throughout their lives in order to have something that they can look back upon and say, I achieved this. It proves that your work has been of value, that other people have seen what you've done and have acknowledged it as worthwhile. The idea that you might be forgotten within a generation or two is terrifying, and this perhaps goes doubly so for actors. In an industry that relies on being recognised and celebrated for the body of work you produce, the idea that you can achieve enormous success, create iconic original parts, and then a short while later be forgotten about is a very sobering thought. William Smith was one of the great restoration actors. He's not much known these days, paling into significance against giants such as Nell Gwen and Thomas Betterton, but in his lifetime he was the original actor in many of the most famous and popular plays of the late 17th century. His career spanned 30 years, too, putting him in with some of the most successful actors. Not only this, but he was a very successful theatre manager, a soldier and a man about town. Although he was highly respected in his lifetime, Samuel Pepys, for example, speaks highly of his good looks and his talents as an actor. Much of what we know of him now comes to us from 18th century accounts of his life. Even portraits of him are now lost. Hi, I'm Mari McNeil, and this is Gin and Gossip, theatre history between the acts. about William Smith is this. He was born in Greenwich at some point in the 1630s or 40s. His early life is very obscure, but 17th century Greenwich would have been as nice a place to grow up as any. The green spaces rose up to an elegant medieval palace, the Palace of Placentia, no joke, in which several queen consorts lived the first half of the 17th century before it was turned into a biscuit factory during the English Civil War. Then it was torn down by Charles II to build the Royal Observatory in its place. William Smith's parents, whoever they were, have been lost to history, but Smith was a bright child and was sent to school on a scholarship before training as a lawyer in London. It was here, perhaps, that he developed his love of the theatre, and in about 1662 he joined William Davenant's theatre company in Lincoln's Inn Fields as a member of the Duke of York's players. Davenant was one of the more colourful characters of the early Restoration, the poet laureate since 1638, he claimed to be the godson of William Shakespeare and didn't mind the rumours that he was actually Shakespeare's biological son. He had fought on the royalist side during the Civil War and been knighted for his troubles, fled to Paris where he converted to Catholicism and, when the monarchy was restored in 1660, opened a theatre, producing flashy heroics that were wildly popular before dying abruptly in 1668. By the time that Smith knew him, Davenant no longer possessed most of his nose, having lost it to a syphilis cure in 1630. To say the least, Davenant was a man who truly lived the Restoration. When Davenant took Smith under his wing, Smith's career on the London stage was as good as made. Smith was one of those fortunate people who found almost immediate success in his chosen career. His company of actors was sponsored by the Duke of York, who was the King's brother, and they were the best around. Everyone flocked to see them. Smith often played handsome young men, heroic figures who told some good jokes, got into a few fights, and married a pretty heiress at the end of the play. 
That was all people really wanted to see in the stage comedy, and Smith quickly developed a reputation for being the man to give it to them. In November 1666, Smith experienced the first hiccup of his career. He accidentally killed a man acting opposite him on stage. Although swords used in stage fights were blunted, they were still crafted by real sword cutters and could inflict injuries if an actor was not careful. One poor actor was blinded when a stage sword struck him in the eye, while another broke a leg falling off the stage in the middle of a fight scene. Smith seems to have been exceptionally unlucky in that his victim died, but other injuries on the stage were not unheard of. Nevertheless, Smith's good looks seem to have excited the sympathy of the ladies of the court, who were very much concerned by what would become of him. He was a tall and handsome man, after all. What happened next exactly is unclear. For a manslaughter charge, he would have received a gruesome punishment, something like being burnt on the hand. But by the following spring, he was back on stage in his own roles, as though nothing had ever happened. Going to show that then, as now, if you know the right people, you can get away with a lot. As he matured as an actor, he began to take on more and more leading roles, including a number of tragedies. A 17th century satirist attacked him, accusing him of dull acting. But I do not think that he could have been so very boring to watch perform the great 17th century parts. He was well known for speaking prologues and epilogues over the years, the lines of poetry which hyped up or rounded off the play, hardly the sort of job you'd give to someone who was no good at audience satisfaction. Samuel Pepys certainly reports watching him act on several occasions and appears to have been a great fan, and if an actor managed to distract Pepys's attention away from the actresses, you know that he must have been pretty good. As well as acting, Smith also decided to dabble in management. He became co-manager of the Duke's company alongside his fellow actor Thomas Betterton in 1677. Large and brilliant, Betterton was the premier Shakespearean actor of his day, a savvy businessman and acting coach to the children of the royal court. His recorded life seems unbearably wholesome. As a young performer, he was fined for swearing, which he never did again, and he refused to make a business decision without the input of his wife, Mary Saunderson, a sensible woman whose acting career was as vibrant as his. When Betterton died in 1710, he was buried in Westminster Abbey. Once again, William Smith could hardly have chosen a better man to befriend. Smith's new role as co-manager of the Duke's company put him into an important position in restoration society. The Duke's company was the more successful of the two companies that were allowed to perform in public. It was where John Dryden, Aphra Benn and George Etheridge and a host of other most important restoration playwrights had launched their theatrical careers. To be at the centre of this hive of creative activity must have been invigorating. In the 17th century, the stage was an important method of communicating ideas about how men and women should live their lives to the general public. It also worked as a way of currying favour with the king. Charles II, who was very interested in the theatre personally, had the privilege of being able to exert control over what was staged. He could, and did, close the theatres when he did not like what was being shown. Of course, this was easy enough when the king and his government were popular. In the 1660s, when Charles II was at the height of his popularity, the plays performed were witty, moving, and exactly the sort of works that the public wanted to see. However, Problems arose when the king hit rock bottom in the popularity stakes. In the late 1670s, two separate political parties were emerging, the Whigs and the Tories, the latter of whom remained loyal to the king and were sympathetic to Catholicism. The general public, increasingly fed up with Charles and concerned that he would leave his throne to his Catholic brother James, largely inclined towards the ideals of the Whig party, 
plays that espoused Tory politics struggled at the box office, and the theatres were thus put in the difficult position of having to either stage plays that pleased the public, which were at risk of being closed by the king, or plays that satisfied the king, which could be financial disasters if no one else wanted to see them. Caught in this dilemma, the London theatre struggled on and off throughout the 1670s. In 1677, Smith managed to find success once again. A Restoration Act would have played dozens, even hundreds of roles throughout his or her career. The repertory system of acting simply meant that plays would run for very few consecutive nights. Costumes, props, scenery and mechanics could be reused for a variety of different plays. Because of the number of parts that Smith would have played throughout his 30-year career, it hardly benefits us to discuss them all, and instead we are going to focus on just one of his more famous roles, that of Wilmore in Afro Ben's 1677 comedy The Rover. As well as being a very popular play during the 17th century and into the 18th, The Rover was a piece that would come back to bite Smith. The play is set in Naples during the carnival, a time that legitimises freedoms in role play, but also invites restoration of order. The main character is the cavalier loyal to Charles II, and indeed exiled alongside him and his brother, the Duke of York. Banished his country, despised at home, and pitied abroad, so it goes. However, this pity, spoken at the beginning of the play, is misplaced. Wilmore, the main character played by Smith, has only just left the company of the exiled Charles II. His political loyalty is established early on. He spends much of the rest of the play drinking, fighting, and pursuing women for sex. By the end of the play, can there be any doubt that the Cavaliers will triumph in the end? This was just the sort of part that Smith was born to play, and he excelled in it. So much so that several years later, Ben wrote a sequel that was all about Wilmore's continued sexy adventures, in which he goes off to Spain and forms an alliance with an attractive courtesan, La Nuncia. At the end of this play, the two agree to live separately, continuing their romance, but rejecting marriage. The second part of The Rover is, surprisingly, not a very good play, but it was dedicated to the king's brother, James, who received it with good grace. Wilmore, Ben claimed in the preface, was written in an exact emulation of James. It's also telling how popular the first play was that it actually received a sequel. This rarely happened in the restoration comedy circuit, and both Ben and Smith lightly suspected that they'd be making some good profits on the new piece. This was the prime of William Smith's career, and perhaps the high point of his life. He was a very successful businessman and actor, he was respected by his colleagues and, in 1683, helped to merge his own successful Duke's Company with the Lesser King's Company, taking over their theatrical premises in Drury Lane. He owned a house in Primrose Hill, which goes to show that it had been a celebrity neighbourhood for over 300 years. He married and he had a son, Francis, of whom he was greatly fond. What could possibly go wrong? His fortunes took a turn for the worse in the mid-1680s. This seems to have been a common theme among any of those men and women who were close to James II. In 1685, Smith entered into an altercation with a nobleman backstage at Drury Lane, which led to the nobleman drawing his sword. The new king, James II, was furious, and he reprimanded the nobleman accordingly. This was the wrong thing to do. At the next performance, a group of Mohawks attended and booed Smith. Mohawks were an unpleasant gang of Londoners, supposedly well-born, who entertained themselves by parading through the streets, sexually assaulting women and killing and disfiguring men. They sound like a nightmare, and not the sort of gang you want on your bad side. Smith apparently wriggled out of the Mohawks' wrath, but more was to come. In 1686, Smith and Betterton lost four acts of a play that had been written by the great tragic dramatist Thomas Otway, 
who had choked on a piece of bread and died the year before, at the age of just 32. Otway's plays had been enormously successful productions for his theatre company, and losing a great talent at such a young age was tragic. The fact that his final work was nowhere to be found likely grooved the theatre's managers tenfold. They advertised for its safe return in the London newspapers, but it was never found, and it remains a lost work to this day. Bad luck comes in threes, and fortune was not through with Smith yet. In 1687, the son of Smith's old mentor, William Davenant, came into possession of the lease on the Drury Lane Theatre, where Smith and Betterton managed their United Theatre Company. Within a matter of months, Smith and Betterton had been ousted. If all that wasn't enough, he was beginning to suffer from kidney stones. No wonder that after this series of mishaps that Smith left the stage for several years, turning his mind to politics, and at the end of 1687, he made up his mind to join the army. The period between 1685 and 1688 was crunch time for the Stuarts. In 1685, Charles II died, leaving a quiver full of children, but none of them legitimate. The throne now fell to his brother James, Afra Ben's favourite member of the royal family. Sadly for James, he had none of Wilmore's personal charisma. He also openly embraced Catholicism, which was super problematic for the public. The clash between Protestants and Catholics had been responsible for European crises for the past 200 years. This was too much for Parliament to bear. In 1688, they contacted William of Orange, ruler of a small, highly Protestant kingdom nearby in the Netherlands. By lucky chance, he was also James' son-in-law. If Parliament could convince him to invade, he and his English wife Mary could be joined to king and queen. On hearing the English Parliament's petition, William discovered that he would find it very agreeable to be king, and he had no qualms about overthrowing his father-in-law. If his wife Mary felt any pity for the plot against her father, she kept quiet. William sailed to England in 1688, and James panicked. He threw the royal seal into the Thames and fled overseas. Claiming that James had abandoned his throne in this act, William had himself and Mary declared joint king and queen that same year. This was what William Smith was getting into when he signed up to support James II in 1687. He served in James's army as a volunteer. He was around 50, and remember he'd been struggling with those kidney stones. And he was a staunch supporter of James's cause, perhaps because of the years he had spent in the Duke of York's company, or perhaps because he had played a fictionalised version of the man in the rover. Perhaps he simply thought that James was the rightful king. Whatever the case, there is something poetic, I think, about the man who had famously played James II on stage, later going to war to defend the monarch's claim to the throne. When James's army was disbanded, and James was overseas, what choice did Smith have but to return to the stage and begin acting again? It was, after all, all that he had found success in for the past 30 years. It was now about 1690, and Smith's choice of play to use as his comeback performance was the Rover, perhaps as a show of support for James II, or perhaps simply because it had been a part in which he had received so much acclaim. He couldn't have made a worse choice. Although the tickets were bought up and the play began well, everything went downhill when Smith made his first appearance on stage. The record of the performance comes from the 18th century theatre historian William Chetwood. Being informed that he should be maltreated on account of his principles, he gave orders for the curtain to drop if any disturbance should come from the audience. Accordingly, the play began in the utmost tranquillity, but when Mr Smith entered in the first act, the storm began with the usual noise upon such occasions. 
Mr. Smith gave the signal, the curtain dropped, and the audience dismissed. James II had only just been overthrown. No one, it is clear, wanted to revive his memory on the stage. This performance effectively ended his career, although his friends got him some small parts on stage a few years later, including a choice part in a new comedy by the talented young playwright, William Congreve. Smith's time as a major player on the London stage was over, however, and he died in late 1695. Perhaps unusually, we know quite a bit about the exact circumstances of his death. One night, he awoke with a terrible cramp and threw himself out of bed in agony. He ended up near the window, but remained there for so long that he ended up catching a cold. And he died three days later. In his will, he left large, generous bequests to his many friends he had gained in his years working in London, as well as to the others he had left behind. He cancelled debts owed to him and left elegant mourning rings for his loved ones to wear. All in all, he remembered 51 separate people in his will, including relatives, friends, army companions, an old landlord and his wife, and even the Davenant brothers, who had taken his managerial role from him in the 1680s. To the poor of Greenwich, his boyhood home, he left £20, the equivalent of about £1,500 in today's money. Anything left over was to go to charity. A decade after Smith's death, a handsome young Irish actor called Robert Wilkes took over the role of Wilmore in a fresh new version of the Rover, bringing to it an exciting, well-polished acting style. He played it to great acclaim for the next 30 years. Smith, who originally played the role, was largely forgotten. Smith's political endeavours were not happy either in the long term. After his humiliation, James II spent a sad life on the continent, where he was entertained by various sympathetic royals, and died in 1701. His son, and later his grandson, both attempted rebellions in the 18th century in order to claim the British throne, but neither were successful. After this point, there was no real chance of James's family returning to power. His supporters, known as Jacobites, persist today, and the current heir general is Franz, Duke of Bavaria. To my knowledge, his chief interests do not include usurpation. It is easy to say that William Smith, who seemed to have been born under a lucky star for the first half of his life, spent the second half drifting from disappointment to disappointment. And yet, to my mind, he had a great deal to content himself with. To be sure, his involvement in politics was a disaster and did nothing for his acting career. Nevertheless, he died a generous and beloved man. He had friends and family he cared for, and who cared for him deeply as well. Even after the disastrous performance of the Rover in 1690, his friends were still keen to help him out in any way that they could, by giving him parts here and there. He was kind, generous, and passionate about the causes that he believed in. If only that could be said of all of us. Thanks for listening to Gin and Gossip. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and make sure to check out ginandgossip.wordpress.com for more information on today's episode. Have a great evening.